Well, my title this morning is Water Baptism, What's It All About? And baptism is a stunningly uh, beautiful act and symbol. And along with uh, the Lord's Supper that we do regularly is one of the two most important practices we have as Christians. And I'm so excited to share about it. And uh, just so you know, this message was written by both uh, Hannah and me. It's kind of a joint effort. Uh, I just happened to be the one delivering it, but uh, she deserves much of the credit as well as we've worked on this together over the years. But the word uh, baptize simply means to immerse. And the absolute essentialness of water baptism in the Christian life is attested to throughout the New Testament. So let's kind of just start with there on examples of baptism in the Bible. So number one, perhaps most importantly, is we have Jesus in all four Gospels being baptized. And it's interesting that Jesus' ministry begins with baptism. Right? He's alive for 30 years, but we don't actually hear that much from him or about him. But each of the Gospels begins with his baptism, although it's kind of just more vaguely alluded to or implied in John 1. And it's significant that God chose this moment, Jesus' baptism, to announce with a voice from heaven that this is his son. Jesus was baptized, of course, not because he needed it, not the forgiveness of sins part, but to show us an example, and because it is a public declaration and identification with the universal church, and Jesus, as head of the church, has identified with us, is united with us by coming to earth and by being baptized. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. It's one of the main ways kind of that we're united with Christ through his baptism. And then the early church, then led by the Spirit, clearly felt that it was a necessity to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So we can also look at examples of baptism in the rest of the Bible, and particularly Acts, which is the one book in the New Testament that really tells the story of the early church after Jesus' resurrection. And there are many stories of baptism in Acts with lots of different kinds of people in different situations. And the evidence is that it has obviously become the essential next step for anyone who has committed their life to following Jesus. And so in the first recorded sermon in Christian history, we have Peter giving a message at Pentecost in Acts 2. And then he gives a very clear application to this first message in Acts 2, 37 and 38. And it says, when the people heard this, Peter's message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do in response to your message? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then after that, we have at least seven stories in Acts of people being water baptized immediately or soon after believing, setting up the idea that this is kind of the norm. This is the pattern for all Christians to come. And just one of those examples would be Acts 18, 8, where it says, many of the Corinthians, these Gentiles who heard Paul, became believers and were baptized. And so you see how belief and baptism are inextricably linked together. And then most importantly, if that's not convincing enough, it's one of Jesus' most clear commands and some of his last words on earth in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, go therefore 
and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did it and commanded it. The early church preached it and considered it essential, but it does kind of still leave the question, well, why? What's with this act of being dunked under water, right? And why is it so important? What is baptism about? Why does the Bible make such a big deal over this act? Well, let's talk about um, what I've categorized from the scriptures as, as the five features of baptism. So we're going to talk about how baptism is association, confirmation, declaration, identification, and preparation. And so let's begin with baptism as association with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is an alliance or union with the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, claiming that that story is the one that defines and determines our life. And Romans 6, 3 through 5 just makes this so clear. It says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, that is, like him or with him, may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And you should really read all of Romans uh, 6 and 7, especially uh, 1 through 14 of chapter 6 to get the idea here. But the teaching is that Jesus didn't just die for us, but in a way, we died with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. That's what we put to death. And everything has become new or been resurrected. <clears throat> Colossians 2.12 says that when you were buried with him in, bapti in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. A great way to think about this is I love the illustration uh, of the Red Sea as a foretype or a shadow of New Testament baptism. So since early, in church since early on in church history, people saw uh, the passing through the Red Sea as a, a type or foreshadow of baptism, where we leave behind our old life, that would be kind of the life in Egypt, and we look forward to new life or hope in the promised land on the other side of the waters. And the old life of sin, which is symbolized by the Egyptians, behind, we leave that behind, just as the Egyptians were behind the Israelites. And they get swept away, that old life gets swept away in the waters of baptism. Isn't that great how that kind of portrays that story? And it's Jesus in the New Testament who parts the waters for us. 
deposits our sins into the depths of the ocean, fulfilling the promise in the book of Micah that he will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea, Micah 7.19. And then through his resurrection, he brings us to the other side, to new life, the ultimate promised land, which is eternal life in his presence, in his kingdom. See, baptism represents this story of deliverance of our trust in Jesus, that just as the sea closed on the Egyptians, right, and completely closed that chapter of the Israelites' life in slavery, so we close off that old chapter in our life, our slavery to sin by burying it with Jesus. There's no going back. We are now followers of Christ, no longer slaves, but free in Him. And this is a cleansing from sin, a life of sin, or at least kind of a, a symbol of it. And that's why we, we fully immerse uh, here at Oceanside. We don't uh, sprinkle or kind of pour. It's to represent that I'm just being bathed in this, immersed in this. This is a cleansing fountain that washes you perfectly clean, fully and completely washes away that old life of sin. And so with that dying to sin, it's, of course, also then a challenge to live that new resurrection life. And it's why we say when we baptize you uh, here, we say you are dead to sin when you go under, but now you are alive in Christ as you come out of the waters. And that leads us to the second feature of baptism, which is the confirmation of the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Believe it or not, this is just one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, for it shows that we are uh, embodied people and that our inner life is actually connected to our outward actions. Uh, in fancy theological terms, if I may, uh, we would say baptism is a sacrament, and the act of baptism is sacramental. And all we mean by that is, is that as a symbol and act, baptism communicates a spiritual reality in such a profound way that to participate in that act or symbol is actually to kind of participate mysteriously in what is being symbolized. And it's such a powerful physical act, so intertwined with the spiritual truths that it represents, that in a supernatural, somewhat mysterious way, it participates in or even brings into the realization, the spiritual reality, here forgiveness of sins, that it represents. And so, yes, absolutely, your sins are forgiven the moment you ask Jesus for forgiveness and put your trust in his sacrificial act for you on the cross. But how do we really know? Right? How do we show the world what has happened? How do we make it kind of stick in our, our, our very being? Well, repent and be baptized as the outward confirmation is what has happened to you inwardly. The essential kind of counterpart or confirmation of inward repentance is this outward baptism. So there's something just so powerful about proclaiming outwardly what has happened inwardly that makes it real. So a few years ago, uh, my sister began to follow Jesus. 
It's an amazing story. And I had been praying for, for her for years. I had been talking to her for years. And then the Lord finally got a hold of her heart. But I was at a distance when it happened, uh, living here on the island. And, you know, I was only seeing her once a year or, or really less than that. Although we were in heavy conversation about what God was doing in her life. And I often felt in my heart or even said out loud to her, like, man, this, this is awesome. This is so great. I'm so excited uh, for you that you're following Jesus now. But when she was baptized in water and sent me the video, it was so powerful. It was so moving. Her commitment to Christ became so real and tangible to me. And the miracle of what God had done, it just all kind of took on a new level. The reality that she was forgiven, a new creation, it just really settled in. And I just sat in my office. I remember watching it in there, and I just wept so hard watching that video. It's probably the hardest I have cried in, in my seven years here. It was the confirmation and sign that she had indeed died to her old life of sin and was living a new life in Christ. And more than just telling me about it, she was showing it not only to me but to the world. And it just made it all so different. So besides that kind of personal meaning of our union with Christ and the forgiveness of our sins, while baptism is also kind of corporately the third feature, a declaration publicly of faith. Like Jesus and like the believers in Acts, baptism is something we do publicly in front of others, kind of in broad daylight, so to speak. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism is like a pledge before God. You are declaring yourself publicly as a follower of Christ. And one of the greatest uh, dangers in the modern or contemporary church is to privatize our faith, to individualize or, or, or disembody our faith, meaning making it just kind of an inward pursuit that has really no claim on the rest of our lives. And it's tempting because it's actually what the world wants from us, and it's what the world is most comfortable with. That's great that you're a Christian. That's awesome. I'm glad that works for you. As long as you kind of keep quiet about it, don't do anything about it, definitely don't invite me to church, uh, then I'm cool with it. But as an outward public act, baptism just flies in the face of that kind of thinking. And sometimes we see Christianity probably almost a little too much as just what we think, what we believe, what's in our mind. You know, kind of, yes, I think the right things about God. But it's good for us to realize that following Christ is also about action, right? Just like kind of an altar call, God gave us and made us bodies. It's, it's good to confirm somehow physically what we believe mentally and spiritually and help us it to kind of become real. So Hannah and I, we have a friend who's a missionary in Thailand. And she told us that in Thailand, baptism is taken very seriously, uh, probably more so than it is in North America. And it really is a physical sign to the family and friends that this person is very serious about following Christ. And many do, new believers, they often don't tell their family about their decision to follow Christ 
uh, for months or perhaps longer out of fear of being cut off from their families. But baptism is a public testimony. And sometimes new Christians in Thailand, they face major disapproval from their families once the family can see from the public act of baptism that the person is serious about his or her new faith and is kind of going public with it. And it's the same in many Middle Eastern countries. People who declare their Christianity by being baptized can face much greater persecution, such as being disowned by family, physical abuse, or even death for their baptism. Baptism is the public sign or commitment that your first and foremost allegiance is to Jesus. Not to nation, not to tribe, or to biological family. It's a prophetic act that your identity in with Christ is your primary identity and now supersedes all other identifications. At our baptism, we take our, our baptismal vows, our, our covenant commitment to follow the Lord. We ask, have you given your life to him? And are you committed to following him no matter what? And just as in a public marriage vow or covenant, we are saying in our baptism, I am more committed to this person than to anyone else in the world. And that's what we're saying to Jesus. Let me just pause here a second and uh, address uh, infant baptism because people always have questions about it and because this third feature is probably the one feature out of the five really most dependent on adult baptism. So although here at Oceanside we do teach believers baptism, uh, meaning baptism comes after you've made your commitment to follow Christ, and that's the pattern uh, that we see in the Bible. Uh, I understand this can be tricky or even a sensitive uh, issue for those who are baptized as infants. And what we always say is just come and talk to us. Talk to us about what that experience means to you, how you feel about your infant baptism, and we'll just discern together how we want to kind of go about that. Because I do believe sometimes it actually is different for different people, just based upon how uh, they have experienced that and grown in that act. And really, most of these features can apply to someone who doesn't remember his or her baptism, but wants to grow in their baptism, uh, including the fourth feature, which is identification with the church, the body of Christ. In Galatians 3, 26 and 29, being a part of the universal family of God is equated with our baptism as something that binds and unites us together. So let's read that. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I know this will really shock you to hear, but there's a human tendency to be divisive. I know you've never seen it before, um, but trust me, it's out there in the world. Uh, it happens. And this was even a problem in the early church where some were saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. I follow Paul. You can read about this in the Corinthian letters. You know, today it's kind of like, 
I read the King James Version. I read the NASB. You know, I kind of follow this. I follow that. I do this because I'm a Christian. I don't do this uh, because I'm a Christian. And there's this temptation to to divide ourselves into parties or factions. But baptism helps us focus on what unites us, namely Christ, more than anything that divides us. And we cannot forget this. Ephesians 4, 5, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free. In Galatians 3, immediately following, verse 27, uh, is this statement, which many believe was a, a baptismal formula for the early church. Verse 27 talks about baptism, but then verse 28, it immediately says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And it follows that baptism as this is kind of what baptism does. And one thing that was so scandalous about Christianity in the first century, which was a time of of tribalism, nationalism, and hierarchy, but what made Christianity so different from basically anything the world had ever known was the way it brought such a diverse group of people together, rich and poor, young and old, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, haves and have-nots, educated, non-educated. There had never been anything like it. We can say that with confidence. And baptism was one of the symbols and practices of unity they clung to to help them understand it and make sense of it. So this is serious stuff. We are baptized into the Christian community and into the global church, capital C. Colossians 2, 11 through 14 alludes to the idea that baptism actually corresponds to Jewish circumcision, which was the previous mark of entry into God's covenant people. But the mark of entry and sign of being part of God's people is now baptism. And Colossians 2 makes that clear. Baptism is a symbol of your new community of belonging. You now have a new identity in a new family. These are now your brothers and sisters. I think it's important to understand this, that after baptism, your family identity and your familial bonds, as important as they are, are actually secondary. Your Christian identity and bonds you share in Christ are primary. Whereas you once followed the teachings, values, or or way of your family, or of some other system of ideas. Now, just like the description in Acts 2, a few verses after repent and be baptized, you devote yourself instead to the teachings of the church and fellowship with them, Acts 2.42. Because not to would be to turn your back on your family that you entered at baptism. So as much as baptism should follow quite quickly our repentance, and we see that pattern in Scripture, We also should make sure people really understand the gravity of what is taking place and what they are committing to and doing and have patience to wait if needed because this is a very serious 
commitment, one of fierce allegiance to Jesus and commitment to his church as your family. And, and nothing saddens me more. It just breaks my heart to see somebody baptized and they kind of see it as the end of their spiritual journey and they disappear or, or don't, we can't follow up or whatever because it's actually just the beginning of your journey with Jesus. Which brings us to the last feature of baptism, that it is preparation to receive the Holy Spirit in greater fullness. Back to Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Or we can look at Jesus in Luke 3.21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove at his baptism. So this is an often, I think, overlooked piece of baptism and what happens. But in both Jesus' baptism and Acts, Luke makes a one-to-one link between water baptism and reception of the spirits. Luke, in fact, seems almost less concerned, honestly, with the actual baptism of Jesus and more concerned with what happens after the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus. And why is this important? Well, the truth is, the life that baptism calls you to is so beyond you. It's not something you can do on your own. So we can't just baptize you and say, on your way, good luck. It's hard out there. No, what resource can we give you? We can give you God's very self, the fullness of the Spirit. Thus, I come into a baptism praying, hopefully praying hard, and expecting greater fullness of the Holy Spirit upon that individual going forward just as it was for Jesus and for the believers in Acts. And again, it's why ongoing fellowship with the community is so important so we can encourage and equip each other in the spirits. So we may often lay hands on people after their baptism, praying for the fullness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, wow, that's a lot of stuff that happens in five seconds. Am I right? (laughs) That's a lot. All that is going on. In five seconds, which is why we have to teach on baptism, because you can't possibly comprehend and experience all that in five seconds, but you can grow in it. So let me just close here with three applications about these five features of baptism. So number one is so obvious, repent and be baptized, right? If you've done the first part, if you've repented of your sins, but not the second, then it's time. Uh, Talk to us. You can fill out the baptism application. You don't have to go through the course because you just heard it. If you've done neither, first call out to God to forgive you of your sins. All you've ever done or left undone that doesn't align with the ways of his kingdom. Call out for mercy and then tell someone and pray with them and then make the public declaration of baptism. If you've already done both of those, that is you've repented, you've been baptized well, then you can grow in the grace of your baptism. This is something I've really realized as life goes on, how important it is for me to reflect and grow in the grace of my baptism. Baptism happens once, but its effects continue throughout life. 
because baptism is maybe the best symbolic summary of the gospel in Christian life. It's why I love to talk about it. Therefore, it's something we can continue growing and lean into. By remembering our baptism, we press into our deep association with the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We gratefully accept the confirmation of the cleansing of all of our sins, and we take on the challenge of continuing to put to death sin in our life. We remember to be bold in our public declaration of our allegiance to Jesus, and we refuse to be distracted by anyone and anything that tries to compete with our allegiance to Him. We live with a, stutter, a stubborn commitment to identification with the community of faith, God's church, and our brothers and sisters, for we know that those bonds are actually eternal and supersede the temporary bonds with our family. And we continually live in preparation in our hearts to receive more of the spirits in our post-baptism lives. One way to grow in the grace of your baptism is the third application, which is to regularly renew your baptismal vows. Your baptismal vows are simply your stated belief in Jesus' death and resurrection and your declaration to follow Jesus no matter what. And there's two primary days you can regularly renew your vows. Number one, on your baptism anniversary. And I want to challenge you to perhaps consider this your new B-day. Perhaps more important or significant than your actual birthday. The early church actually recognized this and how important it was by actually changing the person's name the day they were baptized. That's when they would receive their Christian name as a part of their new life, their new identity that they now have in Christ. So here's what you can do, and we want to help. Uh, if you send us your baptism date, we'll email you every year on your B-Day. And if you're not sure, but you know approximately, I mean, just pick a date that you're going to celebrate it. But tell, us, tell it to us. You can email it to us, or um, you can do any of these. Just write it on a connection card if you know it now. Uh, message it to us in some way. You can just even just go ahead and text it to us uh, right now, and we'll receive it. And then we'll celebrate with you and we'll encourage you every year on the day of your baptism. We'll send you a message to remind you, and we'll just kind of walk you through. Here's how you can kind of renew your commitment to follow Jesus. And I just think that would be so cool if so many of us in the church did this, and we could consistently uh, grow in the grace of our baptism. So we're willing to help you to kind of do some of the work uh, to help you to do that. So send that to us. Send us your B-Day. And then the second way uh, to regularly renew your vows is on the baptism days of others. That's a perfect time to reflect on your own baptism and renew your vows. You know, it's why I love being a part of a church where we baptize people regularly because it gives you that opportunity to continually renew those vows. So one application we're making as a church is, is actually adding uh, this question to our uh, so-called you know, baptismal liturgy, and that's this. You're going to hear us start to say this on baptism. We haven't done this previously, but we'll say every time we baptize somebody, we'll ask them their two questions, the vows, but then we'll also say congregation of baptized believers. Do you reaffirm your baptismal vows to follow Jesus? And will you pledge yourselves to supporting whoever is being baptized in his or her confession of faith? And I hope every time we do that, there is a loud and resounding, we do. Yes, we will do that. So the band can come up. Isn't God good?
Isn't he so cool? I mean, I just think, I love that he thought of baptism and makes it such a central part of our life together. And so I hope you can press in to that.